You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I'm happy to sit down with Liz Faircloth to get her insights on how new investors can get their first deal done, and then how to scale a portfolio from there. Liz is the co-founder of the DeRosa Group and co-host of the Real Estate Invest Her podcast. You'll hear in the episode just how passionate and smart Liz is when it comes to real estate. So without further delay, let's jump right into this conversation with Liz Faircloth. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Liz Faircloth. Welcome to the show, Liz. Thank you so much for having me, Robert. So excited to be here. There are a lot of different topics we'll talk about today. But for those who aren't familiar with you, let's just start with your background. Tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into real estate. I've been at this for about 15 years, which seems like a long time sometimes when I think about it. We started when we, my husband and I started when we were in our 20s. And we started, like many people, we read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. My brother-in-law gave it to me, said, you got to read this book. And I'm like, what? 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 You know? And I read it and I was like, wow, this is really powerful. Both of us had parents who were very hardworking parents, you know, jobs. Neither of us had experience in real estate. We're like, it's really opened our eyes about how people do things differently and passive income and just the whole, all the different things that Rich Dad, Poor Dad spoke about. So that's what got us intrigued with real estate. We said, let's take some courses. Let's figure this out. Let's see if we can get into this. And we started taking courses at our local RIA, like many people, well before like, bigger pockets and things like that, where you start to get familiar with these things. But we took those day courses and we're like, we can do this. you know. So we, we had, didn't really have much money. So my father loaned us $30,000 and uh, we bought a duplex as our first purchase because we were in an area that had a lot of multifamily. That's just kind of the nature of right outside of Philadelphia. It was a little town. And uh, so anyway, we bought our first property. And like many people, you don't know what you're doing, right? You're dealing with tenants, you're dealing with renovations. Thank God it was a more cosmetic renovation. Now, now, in hindsight, we've gone into really huge renovations, but that was a small renovation, which was probably perfect for us, right? When you start. And we were just open our eyes to this whole real estate investing game. And we're like, wow, this is powerful. And that's what got us to courses, just you know, started to really get intrigued with real estate and in love with it, just how you can transform things and what it can do for your long-term wealth building too. I was 24 and my husband was 27 at the time. So and we were dating. So that's even funnier that my father loaned us money and it was my boyfriend and I. We were, I don't think we were engaged, but yeah. You must have liked Matt. <laughs> I said, my dad, my, and my dad's like this uh, Sicilian, you know, Salvatore Randazzi. Like he's a no joke kind of guy. And I'm like, you really liked my uh, then boyfriend. So I was very grateful for that because I could have gone very differently, if you will, you know? Yeah. Speaking of Matt, I know you and him own over 700 units through your guys' company. But let's work our way up to that from the very beginning and talk about scaling a portfolio from a single family house to apartment complexes and then even going out of state. Let's dive into that first deal a little more. How were you able to get that first deal? You know, we did... um, So, you know, one of the benefits, I think, of a lot of these workshops and courses or whatever you take to educate yourself, they give you a lot of different tactics, a lot of different strategies. And at the time... I feel like I'm so, so dating myself. I feel like I'm 90 years old speaking about this. But 
like when I was, you know, back in the day, but we did foreign ads. Like we opened the newspaper and one of the strategies was to call uh, landlords in the newspaper that had a foreign sign or a foreign ad. And in essence, you're basically getting them to say, okay, hey, I'm not interested in renting your place, but are you interested in selling? Because the thinking there is that if landlord, especially smaller landlords have a bunch of vacancy, they might be motivated. Who knows, right? That that was the that was the strategy. That was the thinking. So that's what we did on our weekends. We, we'd open the newspaper and just call, you know, a bunch of talk about getting phones slammed in your face and cold calling. I mean, you want to toughen your skin. It's a great strategy to toughen your skin. I've done a lot of cold calling in my day. But one gentleman answered and he's just like, No, I, you know, actually I'm interested in talking with you. That's interesting. That's all he kind of said. And we met with him and he had this duplex and we struck up a deal with him. He was just kind of done with it, tired of it. He had two vacancies, had a full-time job, like many people trying to do this on the side and was like, I'm done. So that's kind of how we found our first property. I think we made, I don't know, we should count how many calls. We made a lot of calls weekend after weekend. You know? Do you think that strategy still works today? A really good question. I think not so much opening the newspaper and, and calling for rent ads, probably because I don't know who gets the newspaper anymore. But I do think we're at a point, because it's happening with our even larger multis, a lot of the people looking to sell right now, you see a transition in, in even just you know generational wealth transitions, people aging out of properties. They're done. The last few properties we bought are, are older landlords, older self-managed landlords who are just done. And when I say self-managed, this isn't like a duplex now. We had bought a uh, property that had close to 50 units and the person was self-managing. We've bought large multis and people self-manage. So this is not just like a single family or a duplex. So yeah, I do think I think we're at a point where you're finding a lot of tired landlords, a lot of people who are self-managing. If you get to connect with them at the right time, that's your motivated buyers potentially. So yeah, I think that's still a great strategy. You just got to change up how you get in front of them, obviously, and how you get a hold of them. But I think that theoretically is still a great strategy. We obviously, like you said, probably wouldn't use a newspaper today, but we arguably have something that's even better, right? I mean, we have Zillow, we have Realtor.com, we have all these different websites that people are listing rentals for sale all the time. And those are even easier to find, easier to contact people than the newspaper was. So maybe it's an even better opportunity to reach out to people. Absolutely. And you know, you can get, I think when you have folks that have owned these properties for a long time that have self-managed, they have a lot of their heart into the property, right? They didn't just buy it because it was just an investment. And so we've even tried to get creative with them at this point where they become a small equity owner. So they can, you know, they, they kind of become part of a partner. That's kind of, you know, more creative financing. So that there's a lot of ways to slice and dice it to know it's important to them. But yeah, we're, we're in negotiations with a larger multifamily right now that the, the owner might be just a small equity partner. And that's another way to get into the deal versus having to raise the money or, you know, over leverage those sort of things. I actually want to dive into that a bit more because that's an idea I've had too myself and I've bounced it off my business partner. I said, what if we were to buy a property or we offer to buy a property from someone and rather than just completely buy them out, maybe we leave them with a 5 or 10% stake in the property? You don't hear people talk about that much on podcasts. You don't even really right. see it online. So talk to us a bit more about that. What does that look like? What does the structure look like? How does it work? Yeah. And I'll just tell you the evolution of what we've done in terms of financing because we've really built our business by like, Raising private capital. So what ends up happening on these larger multifamilies is that a lot of structure, a lot of the structure is that you know you give seventy percent or somewhere in that ballpark away to like your in essence your limited partners, right? You're keeping as the general partner thirty percent. That's been a very common way we've kind of you know managed and kind of structured the larger multis. 
in this particular, and then what ends up happening is your equity goes down, right? You're doing all the work. Like it's a lot of work. I mean, you know, managing a, a large multi, um, and you have an asset manager that you have more people involved, those sort of things. So anyway, then it's not a bad thing. It's just the way that it's structured or it can be structured. So then the question becomes, okay, so if you don't do that, how do you structure it in a way like we're, we're saying with this owner? The, the conversation with this per- particular person was that they wanted to have the residual income coming in still. You know, so, and this is something that they've owned for a long time. And, they, and you know, we're, we're trying to figure out, is there a way to have them in it for, say, 20%, right? They're a 20% equity holder of the, of the holdings, the, the building. Even there's a creative way to say there's a phased out process, right? You could even phase them out in five years and then they get kind of completely out or do they stay in for the length of the property? There's, you know, we have smaller multis right now where we've struck up a deal where the investor is almost like a private lender slash equity where they're getting equity in the life of their kind of place in, in, the, in the LLC, but it's phased out over like three to five years. And then we basically are buying back more of the building. So in five years, we own the building again, and they've gotten their money back and their kind of uh, return. So there's so many ways. I, I think it all starts to, Robert, with what's important to the person and really what's important to the project. If we bought this other building and raised the money, like our current, like our normal structure or the structure we've done with a 70-30 split, it financially wouldn't make sense for the, for the investor. And that's really the biggest question, right? Is this going to make sense for people who are who are giving, not giving, they're not giving us money, they're, they're investing in the, in the building. I always tell people, don't tell them, you're not getting money. It's not, a, it's not a handout. They're getting an investment. I have to catch myself too. But so yeah, I think, I, just, I think it all comes back to like creative financing is how do you meet that person's need and also meet the needs of the project? And if you can't do all those two things, then it probably isn't the right fit. Because I don't think this, this project will work as well in the traditional sense, financially. Do you think that equity split, even if the seller's just keeping a small piece, do you think that works better with the medium to larger size multifamily? Or if somebody listening to the show today wants to do that with a duplex or even like a triplex or quadplex, do you think that's possible? I think anything's possible. I think that's what people need to... I think what's really fascinating with, with how you slice and dice projects is that it's not like you're adhering to some policy, right? So our first equity partner came on, there's not like it has to be this way. I think that's the good news, but also the, okay, we got to get creative here. And then ha- what's the way to, to protect everyone? And kind of like the wild, wild west, right? It's like anything goes. But, it, but I think it also, yeah, it's all, it's all possible. And our first equity partner, we went 50-50 with beyond friends and family and you know, my dad, that kind of thing. I mean, I mean you have to, that's important. But you know, the non, first non-family member, we just had a 50-50 partnership. We started an LLC and he had a role in the company. We were the we were more day to day. He also had like a strategic role in the company and in the project. And it was two single family homes and it was 50 50. And when he put up 50,000, we didn't put a dime of our own money. And we were like kind of like the local feet on the street. We had managed property. We knew how to turn around the property. We found it, you know, those sort of things. That was a perfect connection. And then that, that worked really well, that, that structure. Equity is great when people don't. I always tell people, like, not, I mean, you know, my husband's Mr. Mr. Raising Private Money. So I'm not going to, Go head to head with him on the details. But what I can tell you is that equity is great for people who want to be in something long term. They want the cash flow, but they also want that. They want that tax benefit, right? They want that. All the other things that come in with being an equity partner. And then they win together. You lose together as an equity partner. Things may take longer than you would want. Lenders are great if they need that fixed, the fixed amount because they're really lending the money and they want their interest rate, whether the project goes well or not. I mean, I've had flips, which really. Is horrible, right? We we go to the closing table and you have to write a check to your lender. 
that's completely not, excuse my French, but sucks, right? That's just, that's like, you did all this work and, but that happens, right? That happens and no one can hit a home run every time. But my point in saying that is as a, as someone who's trying to creatively finance your deals, you really need to know what's important to that other person. Do they need that fixed income? Do they want to win with you or lose with you, so to speak? Are they in this for the long term? Are they just in it for six months, nine months, and they want the return and they want to move on because their kid's going to be in college in two years or whatever? People's lives change. And I think we're so into our own world that I think really being really good at connecting with people that want to invest with you, you have to be in their world and you got to know, okay, this is what the deal needs. This is what this person needs. And this is what I need. And those three things all need, they all matter because if one doesn't work, you're going to go into a deal, everyone's happy, and then you get nothing. And that's happened to us before, not nothing, but you're just like, I'm doing a lot and I'm getting what? What are we getting? You know, like that doesn't make sense. And then, or the lender gets more of the lion's share. So, the point in saying all this is I just think you have to be almost like that truly customer oriented. You got to know what's important to that seller. And you got to talk to them and you got to really seek to understand them and their place. So how about someone just getting started? This probably isn't the best way for them to get their first deal. So what do you think the best way is for someone who's listening to the podcast today, hasn't done their first deal yet, and they really want to buy their first property, or maybe even they've done a deal or two, but they really are just kind of new in it? What is the best way to get started? I think the best way to get started is to start building your track record. Right. So what we did is we didn't like run out and raise money and buy like a big apartment building ourselves our first deal. I think there's people can do that. I'm not saying you can. I don't want to deter anyone. But I think starting small, getting your feet wet, maybe minimizing your upside, but really minimizing your downside too is always more of a conservative approach. And I would highly recommend that because you can get burned pretty badly in this business. So getting started, yeah, knowing what type of like where you want to be in a few years. What's important to you? Because some people are like, oh, I, I really want to build my cash flow up. I love my job. I want to build my cash flow up. I want to build that pat- passive income. And then they go flip properties. Well, those two things don't make any sense, right? Because flipping is not necessarily going to give you this monthly stream of income, I mean, unless you build a business around it, but it's really going to give you a chunk of cash. Hopefully, if you do it well, you're going to make money at the end of that time frame. So you got to know what's important to you, where you want to be. And if building long-term wealth is important to you, flipping can be a means to that, but flipping in and of itself isn't going to do that or wholesaling for that matter. Great strategies to get you there and to be part of maybe your like kind of master plan. I always tell people, I think, and I'm just speaking from experience, we got involved with too many things. So if you want to build long-term wealth, which most people want to do, that's why they want to get into real estate. They don't want to lose money or they don't want, you know, we do it for a lot of the same reasons, I think, most people. So if that's important to you, number one, assess where you are financially and how to get in there, how to get into that game in the, the easiest and kind of like with the, with the lowest hanging fruit, if you will, meaning rental property, you know, knowing what knowing what kind of rental property you want to get into. What's, what, you know, do you want to stay local? Do you want to, do you want to go out of state? I always think local is best, right? For you, unless it's like you're in California, that's kind of tough because California is just hard to invest locally or some of those areas. But my answer in a short way, getting started is to know where you want to go. And then what strategy do you want to take to get you there? And then to start to study that strategy. So if it's a buy and hold investor and you want to buy that rental property and you want to stay local, you just start learning your market, start learning the numbers. You got to know your numbers to the T. So if you want to buy a property or rental in your 30-minute radius, you need to know what a good deal it looks like because then you'll start getting opportunities and people are going to go, well, is this a good deal? I can't tell you that. You have to know that. You need, like, you need to within minutes know if something is a good deal or not, especially in this market. 
because it's things do not not going to stay around if it is a good opportunity. So I think focus on farming your area, farming your market, really knowing your numbers. What's the rental income? What are your what's your competition look like? Starting with a duplex. I'm a big fan of multifamily. So I know people have built wonderful portfolios with single family. We've had some single family. We actually just sold our last one. So we actually don't own any single family uh, rentals anymore, but they're great when they're full. <laughs> they're not when they're, it's not very effective when they're vacant, right? Because you have one tenant. I've heard people do amazingly well with them. So find a niche that works for you. Study your market and know your numbers and just start looking at everything you possibly can. And how do you get in in a way that works financially for you? I really like what you said about minimizing your risk, especially at the beginning, because you hear, especially on social media, whether it be Instagram or just all over the internet, you hear people talking about, go big, do your first deal big. I wish I started with a bigger deal as my first deal. And I get it. I understand that thought process and I understand having big goals. I probably have some of the biggest goals of anyone I know. Mm -hmm. But when really comes down to it, I think minimizing your risk and really just getting started is so important. And for me, my first rental... I did exactly that. I bought a a single family property. I told myself I'd never buy single family, but I decided to because I wanted to minimize my downside risk. The mortgage payment was $300 a month all in. So I knew I could cover that myself if I had to. And so I figured my downside was was minimal and that was allowed me to grow my track record. And if if that went against me, it really wasn't as bad as it could be if I bought, say, a million dollar multifamily with 50 units. So I think that's really, really good advice. Now, how about turnkey properties? Are they a good way for a new investor to get started? You know, we've actually never never bought turnkeys. We've actually sold a, sold a few because we were in that kind of process of figuring, renovating properties. And we're like, should we hold them? And then we, people will say, well, can I buy that from you kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think again, it's like how active or how passive do you want to be as an investor? Again, really, really helpful question to ask as you get going in this business. Some people really want to be passive. They just want to be hands-off. They don't want to deal with the tenants, don't want to deal with the vacancy. They want to deal with the guy who or the gal who just is not really showing up to do the construction. There's a lot of active parts of real estate. We know we hear like passive income, passive income, passive income, but it's a very active business. If you're doing like the traditional buying something, renovating like the Burr strategy, it's an active business. Somebody's managing all that. So I think that's the most important thing to figure out for yourself as an investor for the folks listening. How active or how passive do you want to be? Some people want this to replace their job. So they want to get in and figure it out themselves. So they want to start to scale that themselves. Other people are like, I love my job. I want to do this part-time. I, don't want, I want this to be my retirement vehicle, not my full-time job. So again, turnkey is a great strategy for folks, in my opinion, that are looking to be more passive who are looking to not make this their like full-time gig and replace their whole income and do this like showing up at the job site and meeting the folks and figuring out the contractors like if that's you awesome but that's not passive that's active and you need to know you need to know what your time's worth and what your you know how far your money can go because a turnkey yes it's more retail so in essence you're you're it's definitely not the burr strategy you're not buying low you're not buying under value you're buying at value actually a little higher more retail we all know what that means you know you, you know you want to go to the store and get something on sale that's not on sale you're not going to get something on sale with with turnkey but is that maybe the right strategy for you and what your goals are sure depending on what you're looking for and depending on where you financially want to get to in, in one three five years big things to look out for there's some amazing turnkey companies there's some that probably aren't that great <laughs> to say the least or to say it nicely you know you really want to look out for folks that do this full time this is their gig 
we were looking to start like an arm of our business that did this, took it very seriously, and we're building processes out. And then we're like, this may not be the right avenue for us and who we want to be and what we want to do in this space. And you know, that's fine. We did a good job with the handful that we we ended up working with. But if I was going to buy a turnkey, that would be important to me. You know, now that I know what I know, somebody doing this—they've been in the business a long time, talking to their customers because they're doing it all, and then they're managing it for you. That's the ideal turnkey company. And you still got to know the market. You still got to know the area. I don't care how good you are as a turnkey company, but if you don't want to invest in some state in some town, that's also important. You still got to vet the market. You still got to vet that local community. You can't just can be you know make sure that your turnkey company does that. Like you should know a bit about the market as well. You shouldn't really ever allow anyone to do that for you, in my opinion. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm actually writing a book right now on how to invest long distance and. Yeah. In the part of the book I'm writing right now, I'm answering some questions that I often get about why I don't just invest in cities that are common for out-of-state investing like Indianapolis, Memphis, Birmingham, you know, cities like that. And mm-hmm. I, my reason is exactly what you just said is for me, it doesn't reduce any of the time or the analysis that goes into the properties and it just increases my competition. So why would I go there? right? Why wouldn't I go somewhere else where I'm going to put in the same level of effort to analyze the market, analyze the deals, find deals? and have way less competition. So yeah, I mean, I completely agree with that. Now, if someone starts to feel adventurous or they just can't avoid the temptation that auction prices often present, why might they need to think twice about buying properties at an auction? What stopped you? You know, auctions are interesting because they you're trying to figure out where can I go to get a deal? You know, where can I go to get like a good opportunity that not many people are able to get to or what have you. We've actually never bought a property at a physical auction or a physical, like, you know, they say the court steps. People envision all being on the steps. You're actually not on the steps. You're inside a, a building, but I don't know why people, people have said that like, like that, like you envision all kind of hanging out on the steps. But we've actually bought a property, a couple of properties from like, um, I forget it was Hubzu or one of the auction sites, websites, not so much a physical one. And the biggest challenge to work through is what you don't know about the property really. And you normally can't get into the property unless you break in. And I don't really encourage people to to illegally break into properties. I mean, there are people who do that, but I'm not really that big of a fan of breaking the law. It's not a good thing. So you have these assets that you you know enough uh, with, with the website or at least the physical going to an auction will tell you, but it's intense, right? You're trying to make a decision quickly. You You don't have tons of time, right? And if we're all under the gun to make decisions, we and we see other people bidding. It's like a whole emotional, kind of the, the opposite of what you should do in business. And so we did, we did pull the trigger for a property online because it was, we knew the market really well. Number one, the, if the address comes up and you can't, and you don't know that area really well, meaning like you can visualize that street and you know, like in a second, it's a good deal. That's number one. You've got to know the area, in my opinion, if you're going to move quickly on like a, in that type of, bidding or what have you. But the second issue is in the property. What liens are against that property? What, what title issues are with that property? I mean, you can be getting into something that costs a lot more money to get out. So you need to be so conservative with your numbers, like worst case scenario, like the worst case scenario. And that's kind of how we went into it is that we knew the property I think was worth about 200 grand fixed up. And we were like, okay, we're not going to exceed 50 grand. So there can be nothing. I mean, it's a 1400 square foot house. So it's like, what kind of liens? What, what's the worst case scenario? I mean, that would be really bad if we had, if we went into that property with that type of cushion 
in our opinion, in an area that we knew and we knew what kind of rehab it needed. And we knew. So we took that risk. But that wasn't our first property either. That's the other thing. I don't know if an auction property should be someone's first property. Unless you have an experienced investor going to that auction and you could be a part owner of that or a fly on the wall or help that person in some way, that might be a good strategy. Would you want to put all your... Because then you got to put it all up too. A lot of those processes that you have to put within 30 days, you have to pay it in full cash. You know, Not literally. In the first year, like you're thinking you have to bring all this money to the thing. And that's weird because you're like walking around with a lot of cash. But that's not necessarily... You bring cashier's checks and I'm like a moron, but that's what I thought at first when we were getting going. So yeah, bottom line, I think is really, really important to do your homework on the area. And then also as much as you can. That's why building relationships with title companies helps really like having a great title company you work with that help you and throw some, you throw a lot of business to and they can help you and say, okay, I'm looking at this property and can do those kinds of things too. We've done that where we get like a quick title search on a property, obviously, before we make an offer. But yeah, I, I don't know if I'd make that my first property, my first deal, because there are a lot of caution. There's a lot of risk that goes into it, but you also can get some really good deals. Yeah. I haven't done an auction deal yet myself. But when you look at some of the prices, it starts to be tempting. And that's why I wanted to ask that question because I'm sure people see those numbers and they're like, you know, they start to get really tempted. And so I wanted to to chat about that yeah. really quick. The other thing I would recommend though is that what we also ended up doing was there was a couple wholesalers that ended up going to like the physical auctions every Wednesday. I think it was every Wednesday. They usually have them weekly. The people know them, they show up. It's like their gig, right? This is what they do. These are the kind of people that you want to connect with because it's a whole process you got to study. You can study that process if you have the time on your hands. But if you don't have the time and you have the money or you have a little time, you want to start to build relationships with those wholesalers because they're looking for people like you to to sell those to. Again, wholesalers are not all created equal. You know, there's some that are wonderful. We've we've worked with a bunch and there's other ones that like psychotic what they'll charge you. I mean, it's just it's like highway robbery. So you want to find those people that are going to be fair, but also that are the ones studying going to these and and they should rightfully get paid for that. I mean, I everyone deserves to to get paid for the time and energy. That that was the other thing that we did. We kind of just stopped going. We're like, this doesn't make any sense that we're going to these. Let's team up with some of the wholesalers that are. And so we pay a little more, pay five grand more. We we that that made more sense to us than having to do it all yourself. Cause it's a whole process in and of itself. Whole culture, same people go every week to most of these. Yeah, it's one of those things where you need to just focus on what you're good at and you can't do everything. And so sometimes you're going to give up a little bit, but you gain a lot more on the other side. So I think that was probably probably smart for you guys. So let's get back to your portfolio. After that first deal that you did that we talked about, where'd you guys go after that? What did your next few properties look like and what strategies were you using? At the time, we were like, we got to get focused on an area. And we thought that was going to be the Philadelphia area. And at the time, we, that was right when we got married too. We moved to New Jersey. So we're like, let's let's get focused on where we live. And we lived about 15 minutes from like Mercer County, central New Jersey. So we really want to make that our focus. So we ended up doing a 1031 exchange from that duplex into our next kind of set of properties, which were basically quadplex, you know, fourplexes in Mercer County. So we actually bought two from from one person. And then over the next like eight years, we ended up getting about 20 units on that same block. We've sold those since in the last five years we sold them, but it was more of like a strategic move for us. But it was a great, a great learning around how powerful it is to buy in the similar area. And you know, sometimes it becomes very deal oriented. People get pulled because it's a good deal, quote unquote. 
but it really makes a lot of sense. If you're going to farm an area, to start really going all in on an area, a street, a block, a neighborhood, and you start to really, be, you become your own comp. You create your own comps, which is super cool because you're improving the property and, and those sort of things. So that was a good strategic move for us to kind of get focused. And then we would talk to the owners on the street and they'd be like, oh, well, I'm looking to sell. We're like, awesome, because we own those buildings. And so those were all fourplexes. And then multifamilies really became the focus for us. And, and that was right around 08. And then we got into other things. We started to flip houses and we bought a commercial building and then we bought a raw piece of land, like everything you're not supposed to do. We did. And that kind of slowed our growth a bit. And I think when you get involved with things too quickly, too soon, we hadn't mastered multifamily by any means. We just got diluted a bit and we got involved in a lot of different things. So over the years, multifamily has always been, it was our first purchase and it, it's still our strategy. And it's what we know. If you can run a duplex as it gets larger, yes, it's a different type of asset, but it's still in essence, a similar pivot, if you will. So the success that we've had has been focusing and the bumps or the, I'd like to say the twists and turns have always been things that are not as focused on what we know and how executing what we know and building a team around what we know. But we were young and just wanted to try different things. So you have to be really mindful of your own personality and your own needs and your own, this is a boring business. It should be a little boring actually. And I think that's the trap is that it looks very like, glamorous, like always doing something different. It's sort of a boring business if you're actually running a really good portfolio. Not boring, but it shouldn't be as sexy and glamorous as I think we hear on podcasts and in books. And I think that's unfortunately just what HGTV wants you to think think about or see, but it should be a little more steady and true. And it's all about getting better each time you do a deal and trying to build a process and streamline it and those sort of things. So... Yeah, HGTV and social media certainly do make entrepreneurship and real estate look a lot more exciting than it than it really is when you're in the business, growing a business. That's for sure. I would definitely that agree. The, that is the truth. <laughs> so given how many deals you guys have done and how many units you currently own, you must have learned quite a bit about finding good tenants and how to screen them. Once someone buys their first rental property, what is the best way for them to actually find and screen potential tenants? There's a lot of a lot of strategies out there and knowing the profile of your tenants. In other words, like people get again, just to share some thoughts, like people get very focused on the property and the price. But we don't often think like who rents there? Like who's the common tenant who lives there? You need to know those things before you buy a building. And you need to know the type of customer you're serving. We got our start, like I said, in, in New Jersey, and then we bought a lot of property in uh, Trenton, New Jersey, which is an urban community. I see minus neighborhood. And at the time, we're like, this thing is going to turn and we know we're getting ourselves into. But we needed to know who our tenant base was, right? That's a different environment than like Princeton, New Jersey, if you will. I mean, I'm not saying anything that's not accurate. So you, you need to know who you're serving and you need to know how to best serve them and what type of profile of a tenant is going to work for your property. And obviously not discriminate and, and all those sort of things that are really critical to, to being, you know, making sure you're keeping in with law. You know, for us, we were too nice at first. We had, we, we didn't really, we didn't know, we didn't know. And we were probably just like, oh, you seem really nice. You know, really, I mean, it was really bad. And we would give people kind of like, we had standards, but we kind of didn't really listen to them. We, we had it all written down and all that good stuff, like you're supposed to, but we'd meet someone and go, ah, you know, and you really hear people's stories and my background social work. So I think we kind of got 
kicked in the teeth a couple of times at the beginning because you really are empathetic to people's stories and their their needs. And then you learn, okay, there's these are the policies and the procedures and these are our rental criteria and we don't budge off of that. And over the years, once we stick close to what our rental standards were, and that became really helpful and important. As you buy assets in different class neighborhoods, you're going to see a different type of tenant just because they're attracted to that that building in a different way. But, so the different classes of assets do do tend to have different types of tenants. So you need to know what you're getting yourself into. I think that's the number one thing that people don't think about is that we could say class A, class B, class C, but that does mean that does translate to what type of tenant is going to typically rent from here. When you take over a property, large or small, you're going to have a transition time, right? There's a new sheriff in town. And most of the time, folks are selling for some reason, right? We, you know, it's not like they're, they're selling because all their tenants are perfect and everything's running wonderfully. There's a, something, there's always an issue. Every asset we've ever bought, there's always something that the, the owner did not tell us before closing. So, so the biggest thing is that you need to have a transition plan, whether it's a duplex or whether it's a 10 unit or whether it's a hundred unit. And the transition plan becomes even more important, the more units you have. When I, may, when I say transition is you need to teach these tenants how to treat the property and also what the standards are, and then be able to communicate those to the tenants. And then you'll see who falls off, who doesn't, who's not able to keep up with your standards and those sort of things. So then when you're screening new tenants, you're basically keeping to your your rules and your policies. And I would keep to them as close as you can because the more exceptions we've made over the years, the more we've it's came back to bite us. I also say too, if someone says, Oh, well, I can do some of your maintenance. So give me a reduced, a reduced cost of my property, my unit, and I'll do all the maintenance. We had we've had those kinds of arrangements. Those don't ever work out very well either because the two aren't created equal, right? So you got to keep that stuff separate. They could be your maintenance person, but pay them in addition to them paying their rent. All those funny little scenarios we've gotten into and they just don't work in our experience. So have standards, number one, then keep to them. And we even created like a scoring mechanism where we actually scored people basis of the rental standards, credit score, rental application, the interview, all again, all up and up from a legality perspective. But what it does is it actually creates a consistent way to measure person A to person B so that you can't be called to say, hey, why did you choose this person over this person? Well, this person got a higher score basis of rental standards. And that really tended to be like the best thing we can do. And it created a standard way to do it versus how we started. Yeah, I actually do the exact same thing. I create a scoring rubric, if you will, for all the tenants for each property. And then I use that to, to choose my tenants. So what are some of the big red flags that people should look out for? What are the big ticket items? I think people really do teach you a lot during the screening process and the, and the kind of like coming to see the property. You're kind of looking at what's not consistent with what people are saying and what they're giving you. I think that's a huge red flag. So in other words, someone tells you that they have XYZ job. And then you run, you run the credit or you get their application and it's something is completely different than what they told you. Like inconsistencies, I think is, is a big red flag to me. If someone says they're getting paid X dollars and again, on their pay stub, it's why did you forget that? Did you not know how much you were getting paid? Like people know how much they're getting paid. That, that doesn't like, oh, I didn't know I was getting paid all that. Like, so like just what people say and what they give you and what they actually write down, I think seems like so common, like any normal person would, well, no, tons of people do. They make such inconsistencies on what they say and what they do. I mean, little things too, if I meet folks and at the, the property and showing them the unit, 
by the way, I used we used to do that where we'd show create showings and then no one would show up. And then you've driven out to the property and and then that just kills your time. So now, and I know there's so many more strategic ways to do it now. In fact, that's when I we were starting, which we did. We do, you know, open houses from two to three. I'm gonna be at this property showing this unit. And then I'd ha- we'd have about like 15 people say they're interested. Great. Come between two and three. We don't set up private showings anymore. That, w- that worked really well when it was my time that I was giving. And I would recommend that to some of the other leasing agents that have worked with us, like create like more of like an open house approach because then it creates competition and it also creates a little more like this. Oh, a lot of people are interested in this. I got to kind of get to the, get to it. I think the biggest red flag to me is inconsistency and their credit score is really high, but they don't make any money or, Hey, that's interesting. Why is that? But, but credit is important. Jobs, being in a job a long time, hugely important in my opinion. Red flag if you see people going to different jobs, hopping around. That's always something like, hmm, what's going on there? So I'm sure there's more, but there's a few that popped in my head. What have been some of the biggest mistakes that you've made and how can people avoid those with screening tenants? You know, just to please say screening, because like you say in general, I could probably go on all night here <laughs> all the mistakes we made. You know, I think the biggest mistake is allowing your gut to make a decision, in my opinion. Even if you're good at reading people, I'm really good at reading people. I'm really good with people. Those are the folks that actually should do doing a scoring mechanism or do something that's objective. So if you know you're naturally a subjective person, you have to create objective measures for yourself because you're naturally going to be subjective. I think that that's the biggest mistakes that people can make is they just, they don't listen. They don't listen to the numbers. They don't listen to, the, to what's on paper. And they, they go with a sense of urgency. They don't want to have another month vacant. You always hear the adage, you know, hire slowly, fire quickly. It's the same thing with tenants or, or any of those things. I'm, I'm a big fan of making sure you get the right fit. And then it takes a lot longer to get somebody out of your property. And also figure out your strategy and where to rent basis of the type of people that you want to rent to. Like that's going to work for your strategy. I think that's an understatement. People do not think about that. They think about the cost of a property. They think about their rental income. Oh, that's only going to be this, the 1% rule. Awesome. And then they don't even realize the type of tenants that that property attracts. Are you willing and able to manage that tenant base? Not a big question people think about, but it's huge. Before you even get in, other people say, oh, I've never had an eviction. 20 years, I've never had an eviction. And then they tell you where their properties are. I'm like, oh, well, that makes sense. That makes complete sense. I think a lot of it is the asset, but more importantly, is the tenant base you're going to connect with and work with. And um, these are all things to think about and really have a strategy before you get into that asset. Don't just look at the rental income and your, your cash flow and all that good stuff that we all get excited about. Yeah, I was going to say that stuff's easy to get excited about and yeah. often makes you skip over the details. So a lot of people read books and even listen to podcasts these days when they want to learn about a topic, like listening to this podcast that we're on right now. But what about other ways someone can learn, like say a real estate investing conference? Why should the listeners try to attend a real estate conference this year? There, and there's so many, right? I feel like every every week I'm getting which is awesome, getting invited to speak or getting invited to the conference. I'm like, wow, there's a lot of of real estate investing conferences. Yeah, I think conferences are phenomenal for a lot of different reasons, especially the ones that are a little more like educationally based, not just trying to sell you things every minute of the day, which I've been to as well. But I, I do love conferences. Number one, I know it's cliche, but like, your network is your net worth. And I think there's so much, there's so much truth to that. And it's so cliche and corny to say, but it's true. So how do you build that network? Go to conferences. 
And I think conferences are phenomenal because there's people in that room that don't really need to be there because they're doing just fine financially. There's other people who are just starting out and it's really neat to see people helping each other, supporting each other. There's always something you can give. There's always something you can learn. Everyone. I mean, if you're ever around people and they're like, I know everything, I never want to be around those kinds of people because there are people like that. I'm learning things every day and so is my husband. So I think the other way to learn is to start surrounding yourself with people that want to support each other. And that's what we're up to. My partner, Andressa, and I are up to with, with what we're up to with the real estate invest her community is really creating a community, whatever that community is, but being in a community of people who really want to share and really want to learn together. Um, I think that's really critical. And also to give you kind of the accountability too. Like you said you were going to buy a property. That was six months ago. You keep talking about that. You know, you know those people that keep going to the meetups and they're like, I'm going to buy a property. I'm going to buy a property. You're like, I know it's a tough market, but come on, you've been talking about this for a year. So I think those types of communities, the conferences, the meetups help hold you accountable or can help you be held accountable. And I think that's really what it comes down to. And I don't think the education's, I mean, you can read how to do all these things. You can listen to enough podcasts and read enough books, but are you going to do it when the rubber meets the road? And then you're going to have people to bounce things off of. So I think those, that's why conferences and you know, we have meetups, invest her meetups, all women based groups around the country. We have 23 of them right now. And women really appreciate it because it's just giving you the, giving them the support that they need. And it's not just our meetups, but any real estate investing meetup kind of approach as well is really helpful. If someone listening to the show today has tried real estate before, maybe they did a deal or two and it didn't go so well, or maybe they're thinking about getting into real estate now, but they're worried what might happen if things go wrong. How can they overcome that failure or just be prepared to get back up when the entrepreneurial life of real estate investing knocks them down? And it will. You know, so I mean, I'll tell you this. I was talking to a, a friend of mine in, in our invest her circle and, and she was really upset. She was telling me about a project she she went through and how she had lost close to 50 grand. And I said, I, I'm really, really sorry to hear that. It must be really tough. But I'm really glad it happened. She's like, why? And I, I said it very kindly, but I said it in a way that was like, I'm glad it happened. And she goes, why You know, why would you say that? I said, I'm really glad you got that out of the way because now you're going to learn really, really what you need to learn to move through that. And now you're going to take all that learning and put it into the next deal and do so much better on that next project. She's like, you're absolutely right. So, so I always say like, fail fast, fail quickly. I don't want anyone to fail, but if you're going to, which you're, I don't know how you can get away from always, some people, I don't know how, sometimes you listen to these podcasts, they're like, I do amazing and I've never failed and I've never lost money. And that's awesome. Good for them. They're really like the, the smart, the smart chosen few. I can't say the same thing. We have lost money. We've gotten our, our teeth kicked in some really tough things. I mean, money stolen, stolen from us. I mean, some serious stuff that would make most people like, why are we doing this? We just keep learning from it and you keep learning from it. And you have to look yourself in the mirror. You have to take responsibility. Are you the victim or are you going to be the victor, so to speak? Bad partnerships have you in the middle of it. So it's like, oh, that person did this and that contract stole from me. And so if you can look yourself in the mirror and take responsibility and accountability, learn from it, grow from it, and minimize it every time, then, then you're on a good path. I mean, if you keep making the same mistake, maybe you should try a different business. But losing money in this business, I think, is inevitable. I do, unfortunately. I hope it's small for people. But if it isn't, learn from it. Because if you keep learning and learning what you need to do next and making it better, don't give up. It's taken us quite some time to move through some challenges, but we keep getting better from it and learning and growing. That's the key and not giving up. That's the big key. You just can't give up. As long as you keep going, you'll make it through. 
you can't expect to know everything in this business overnight. I don't care how many books you read. I don't care how many podcast episodes. There's so many things that are so unique to property, to the deal, to the owner, to the fill in the blank. If you're really good with people, you may not be as good with the analytics, vice versa. So, so many pieces of this business. Just know yourself, know yourself inside out. What are you really good at? What's your genius? Try to partner and build teams around you. And you always hear that, hire out what you're not good at, but really is important in this business. It cannot be good at all of the aspects of real estate investing. Impossible. What is the number one piece of real estate investing advice you'd give to someone listening to the show today? I would say focus. Focus and know where you want to go and don't let the outside noise distract you. I had a woman come up to me at a conference recently, like you're saying about a conference. And she said, we have a bunch of small multis. We've got 60 units. We're making X dollars in cash flow every month, doing well. I think we might need to get into syndication. I'm like, do you own all these properties? Yeah. Me and my husband own all of them, 100%. But we might want to get into syndication, right? That's our next thing. I'm like, sounds like you should keep doing what you're doing. Sounds like you're doing really well with what you're doing. And if you want to get to that goal of X dollars every month, sounds like you need about 10 more units of owning them 100% yourself. I would do that. Just do that a little more. That's completely like another world. So I think people get so distracted. And then we hear these people who are doing X, Y, and Z, and we think that's the next step for us. So I think you need to focus on what's important to you, your own financial goals. And the way you're going to get there, and I'm not saying tweak, don't tweak that, but I think too many people look outside when they should kind of stay focused, keep doing, if you're getting success, keep doing what you're doing and then pivot and then get into something. Once that thing is streamlined and really like hands off, you can step away from it. The best advice I can give you. Yeah. I think that's really, really, really good advice. I think, again, we've mentioned it a few times here on the show already, but just social media makes everybody envious, I guess you could say, of of other people, even though that's not necessarily your goals. And I believe we talked about this with Chad Carson a few episodes ago, and he said the same thing. Make sure you're working towards your goals, not someone else's goals. And make sure that aligns with what you want out of life. Yeah, I think that's great advice. So for those interested in learning more about you and just connecting with you further, where is the best place for them to go? Kind of a, a recent kind of real estate projects and things that we're up to on, on that side of it is Derosa Group, D-E-R-O-S-A-G-R-O-U-P.com is our company website. And then all the neat stuff that my partner Andres and I are up to with regards to the Invest Her community and our meetups and Facebook community and podcasts and all that good stuff that we have going on. You can go to therealestateinvesther.com. I'll be sure to put links to all the different things we talked about throughout the show in the show notes. And as always, I'll put books that relate to these topics in the show notes. So you guys can go read those if you want to learn more about specific things that we talked about. And I'll also put links to all of Liz's resources that she just mentioned. So you guys can go connect with her there. Liz, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It was a pleasure, Robert. Thanks for having me. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.